comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jeremy Bai for another episode of the Righteous Blood Podcast. Tonight we're going to be talking about Magic Blade, which is a uh, 1976 film uh, directed by Cho Yuen, stars T-Lung, and it's based on a Gulong novel. And we're also going to be talking about Human Lanterns. This is a 1982 film directed by uh, Sun Chung, and it's uh, it's kind of a blend of a horror and wuxia type of a thing. We'll get into that as we discuss it. But I think first we're going to talk about Magic Blade, right? Is that our, our first topic for the night? Yes, and before we get started, I just want to mention that um, I am still under lockdown here in California, COVID-19 lockdown, and my kid is um, has been bored out of his mind for like two months straight, so if he comes barging in, yelling and screaming, I apologize in advance about that, um, but hopefully my, my mom can keep him occupied for the next you know, hour or so while we chat. And yeah, so Magic Blade is... Uh, uh, in Chinese, it's Horizon Bright Moon Saber, and there is a translation available that you can find online. And this was one of, I would say, the not only one of my favorite movies in general when it comes to Wuxia, but this is also one of the big inspirations for our game that we'll get more into later, Righteous Blood with this Blades. And in fact, we include this one on our uh, Wuxia Crash Course. So in the in the game, we have like a few, uh, just a very short list of highly recommended um, content and this is one of them yeah. and it's a it's a like you mentioned dark but also very complex and yet not too complex of a plot with a lot of plot twists and turns and i just i really love this movie what what i would say is with magic blade so chor yuen is famous for making movies that are filled with characters and they're they're often based on gu long books which was maybe one of the reasons why they're so filled with characters and they're also famous for being a little bit confusing sometimes because of that, because there's so many people to keep track of. And sometimes they do this thing where they introduce a character and you see the name in Chinese, but there's no English translation of the character name. So you don't necessarily know who they are when they're referred to later on. So with Cho Yuen, what I always say is just enjoy the ride the first time. And on repeat viewings, the plot will start to sink in more. And Magic Blade is not the worst offender, like you were saying. There's, there's, there's much much harder Cho Yuen movies to follow. But but this one definitely has a big cast, wouldn't you say that this is a uh, and it's got a lot of really uh it's got a lot of really great people. It's got T Lung, it's got Lo Lie, who we'll also see in Magic Lanterns. It's got Tani Tian who we'll also see in Magic Lanterns and it's got Teresa Ha Ping who's my favorite plays my favorite character ever in any movie and we'll also see her as well in Human Lanterns. Um so I don't know what I, I I know we've talked a little bit about this movie before, but what's what was your like original reaction to to Magic Blade, and what did you think of the movie this time around? Well, um, as is sort of becoming a recurring theme, in case there's anybody out there who has been listening to all of our Righteous Blood pod- podcasts, my view has changed over the years. I remember, as I've mentioned before, when I first got into Usha. I was more into, I would say, the 90s and post-90s movies with the CGI and, and whatnot. And so when I first saw this one, I kind of, my, my reaction was sort of like, what? <laughs> like, that was my reaction. Okay. Kind of, I, like, 
I had no idea what it was going into it. And I was kind of blown away, not in a good or bad way. I just was kind of like sort of mind blown after the end of it. And then mm-hmm. it just, I didn't really know what to think. And then years later, I, or I actually have had it on DVD. And so I was able to rewatch it a few times. And so th- at this point, this is probably, I guess, because I did rewatch it before doing this recording. I would say this is maybe the fifth or sixth time I've watched it. And so now it's like every time I watch it, I like it more and more. And of course, understanding the plot helps a lot as well, because like you mentioned, the first time, just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. And you're probably not going to be able to pick up on all the finer plot twists and stuff. But after you go back and watch it again and again, you kind of start seeing everything fit together, all the puzzle pieces. It's it's a lot more enjoyable, I think. Definitely a lot more enjoyable on the second or third time around. Yeah, and it's kind of a, a bit of a mystery that starts with a duel between two characters. The main character, uh, Jeremy can correct me when I pronounce it incorrectly, but it's uh, Fu Hung Se. Is that how you, how do you pronounce the last name? Well, it, it, in in Mandarin, it's, uh, if I, um, I, I don't quote me on the tones because I can't remember the specific tones, but it's Fu Hong Xue, I think, is what okay. it is. And, and how were they? Was that how they were saying it in the movie? Where we were listening to the Mandarin or the Cantonese track on Amazon? I was doing Mandarin, and that's I'm pretty sure how they. I'm pretty sure because so the Shaw Brothers movies all have really standard Mandarin. Yeah. Um, uh, dubbing. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's not the. Those are not the voices of the real actors. So they're they have really good Mandarin. They don't. Yeah, they don't do the. Um, you don't actually start to hear the actors' voices. I think until like the early '90s. Like something, something like that. Like so, so like if you watch like an early Jackie Chan movie, it's not usually really Jackie Chan talking, or, or if it is, it's in post production dubbing. Um, so, so yeah, so there's 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 that character, and then there's the the Yen Nan Fei character played by Lolier, uh, and they're dueling at the beginning, and then the duel is interrupted because they realize that somebody's trying to kill Yen Nan Fei, and that propels them onto this adventure where they seek out the peacock dart, and then they have to confront this mysterious master swordsman who operates a really sinister widespread organization and it's just basically the whole time he's just constantly sending minions after them and every minion is like a a finely detailed little character and and oftentimes you'll meet them for three seconds and then they're slaughtered and then they move on to the next person so uh so oh, I ahead. looked it up, and it is Fu Hongxue. So Fu is the surname. Hong is is the word for red, and then uh, Xue is the word for snow. So that's okay. his name. And and I think one of the things I like about this is that like about this movie is that it has the one of my favorite tropes, which is the the wandering top expert. You know, he yeah. he's supposed to be one of the top guys, and he doesn't he's not working for anybody. He's not on on any specific mission necessarily. He's just kind of out there in the Jianghu doing his thing and reacting to this pl- developing plot. He's like he's basically like the fastest sword in the Jianghu, right? That's his thing. So he's a good of comparison might be the you know the fastest draw in the West type of thing. Like he, even even down to like they give him the outfit they give him. I think is meant to resemble Clint Eastwood. I'm not sure, but it looks like that poncho that you see on. I think it has to be a reference to that, and plus his his weapon is holstered at his hip, and yeah. he like twirls it almost like a like a revolver before yeah. putting it on his hip. And you know, speaking of which, I I tried to look this up beforehand, I, I failed. 
there's a scene where he's getting beaten up and they're like stepping on his hand and stuff. And I swear that's directly from either uh, a fistful of dollars or for whatever, one of those, yeah. um, uh, what's those, it? What the is spaghetti it? Westerns with, um, yeah, with but Clint. specifically the man with no name movies. I'm pretty sure there is a scene in, um, I want to say it's for a few dollars more, but it might be fistful of dollars where that exact same thing happens. And the main character, Man with no name and Poncho gets beaten up and they step on his on his hand and I couldn't help but wonder if if that was the inspiration for that scene. I mean, there's definitely like a lot. Uh, there's a lot in you know. I I think we've mentioned this before, but a lot of Gulong stuff definitely has like a James Bond element to it. But this one also has that Western element, and so you get all these different tropes from other genres kind of trickling in, which I think adds to it. And also, you know, the characters. He's interesting. He's kind of the he, he's he's one of these characters. He's the fastest sword, and he's really good at observing things. Like he always, if somebody's trying to poison him, he can see it. You know, you can you know, the, and that's you know the early part of the movie. That's one of the big things that happens when they're discovering that Yen Fei is, uh, you know, somebody's trying to kill him. You know, the kid walks up with some bread, and you know, and and Fu Hongshu slices the bread in half, and there's these darts inside, and you know, and the same, and then there's the wine, and he you know smashes the the wine jug, and the powder sort of comes out, and so you know, he's just he's his two key traits are how fast he is with his blade and how observant he is, um, and so so yeah, so uh, I don't know any any uh, anything you want to talk about with the plot or characters or i mean i don't want to get too much into spoilers but i i will say that i think um this is this movie well as i mentioned before it really encapsulates what we were aiming for in terms of our game in that it has these you know and we'll get we'll get into this more later it has like you mentioned these really unique eccentric characters sometimes they're only there for a moment before they get killed and then also the uh, the the complex plot where you don't really know what's happening up until the very last minute and and nothing is as nothing is necessarily what you think it is. We really tried to bring that into the game and I think we su- we succeeded and I think that's one of the the main strengths of the film. Yeah, and I think um, my favorite part of the movie. I mean, I don't know. Do you want to talk about eccentricities now or do you want to? hold off until we've discussed human lanterns maybe we should do human lanterns first and then we can kind of lump them together all right so the the one thing i just want to say is i i really love devil grandma she's my favorite character in the movie and that was the thing that sort of sealed the deal for me the first time i ever watched it was just you know this devil grandma character was something i had never i mean it's, it's a trope you know it's like if you watch a lot of wushu you see it but it was my first real realization of that trope and so i uh and, and and Teresa Ha Ping plays her, and she's so terrific in that kind of a role. She also plays the madam in uh, Human Lanterns, if as a contrast of, you know, but uh, but but anyways, yeah. So I, I guess moving on to Human Lanterns. Well, the final uh, thing I did want to point out is yeah. that in these Righteous Blood podcasts, I don't want to get too much into language aspects, um, but I do want to point out that I I think the translation for Magic Blade is actually really good i mean at least the version on amazon the subtitles are quite accurate i mean it's not perfect there are some i didn't really take notes but as i was going through i would say very very accurate the, the sub the translations are not always perfect or, or sometimes really really bad and this is definitely not one of them so that's it's, another upside to it it's also worth checking out the book too on on wuxia world because that'll help 
shed some light on a lot of things. There are big changes. The main character in the book is is limp in one leg and he has epileptic seizures and there's a you know other details like that. There's a couple of characters that they 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 combine in the movie just for efficiency. So but it's 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 helpful sometimes to go to the books if if you find the movie confusing. Um so so yeah, so Human Lanterns. This I think was your first time seeing this one. Is that correct? Yeah, that's so, that is correct. So, and oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, just I I, I liked it, and I got to point out, um, as I mentioned to you um, in email, I'm not a like slasher horror fan. For just kind of by the way life worked out, I my parents didn't really let me watch that kind of stuff when I was younger, and then by the time I got to the point where I could if I wanted to I didn't really have the desire so I've never seen okay. really I would say almost any horror movies just a couple here and there okay. and so I don't really have much to compare it to you'll have to provide that insight but what I can say is that this also was really and I, I would say very much the kind of feel we're going for in the mood for our game and I think it was a great suspenseful and very very odd film there were some things about it that i didn't like but overall i thought it was it was really cool i really really liked it we'll get into that i just want to give people the quick plot rundown which again it does kind of involve a rivalry between two not just master swordsmen but two very reputable men in the city that they they live in and at the beginning of the movie one of them uh causes the other one to lose face and that instigates this whole conflict and in order to get revenge, it's all centered around this lantern festival where the, where one of the masters wants to get a lantern that outdoes the other one. So he goes and he finds a lantern maker who just so happens to be a, a former swordsman that he defeated and humiliated. And this lantern maker is actually just trying to get revenge on him. And so as he's making the lantern, he's kidnapping people that are important to this guy and doing whatever he can to ruin his life. And his whole purpose is to basically destroy him. And so it's it's an interesting movie because it's very character driven, but it has a lot of sort of horror, gore and exploitation movie elements, as well as wuxia and kung fu and like all these other things. So it's just it's it's I, I think it's primarily about the characters. I think what makes the movie work isn't isn't that it's just a, you know, a, a mash of wuxia and horror, but that you have these very compelling characters who all want something very clear, even, even down to like the, the courtesan at the beginning who just wants to be his concubine. And that's why she basically agreed to humiliate him at the party. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. Is there any plot element that I didn't mention that should be brought up or. Um, no, I think that's good. I think for me, two of the things that I like the, the most, one of them would be, like you mentioned, the characters. I, I, I think that it does a good job of not having, there's not really any protagonists and there's not, I mean, obviously the killer is the ultimate bad guy, but there's, there's no real good guy. And in yeah. fact, the main character who's a real jerk and you kind of don't ever really like him. He's has this rivalry with the other guy and the other guy, he's actually, for much of the movie, not really that there's not much about him that's unlikable to the point where I was kind of thinking, hey, maybe this guy isn't that bad after all until there's a certain point where he yeah. kind of reveals his true nature. And so I, that was one thing that I, I liked, but I liked those different characters. Another thing I liked was how 
those two guys have no idea what's really going on for much of the movie. And I liked that, that misunderstanding element where people are going missing and they're both accusing each other of, of being the, the culprit when in fact they're both kind of being manipulated and they don't really realize that for much of the movie. And then eventually they do realize it. And then what results after that, I, I also liked that as well. And so, but you said some of the movie fell flat for you or didn't work. What were some of the parts that didn't work so great for you? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really buy into the bad guy, the killer. And, and I, you know, again, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a expert or in fact, it's not even that. I don't know anything about horror, slasher, those kind of movies, whether it's, you know, Friday the 13th or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or any of them. I don't know. I've never watched them. Maybe one day I will. So I don't know how this guy's behavior falls into that in terms of like the tropes of the genre. And of course, obviously, this is a Chinese movie, so it wouldn't line up specifically with Western movies. But I just, he just never clicked with me. He wasn't scary to me. Mm -hmm. And like, in fact, he was more scary when he was not the killer. Like when he was like the brooding, sort of like angry swordsman seeking revenge. I was like, cool, he seems like kind of bad guy. Then he would like put on his mask and be like, yeah, I think whenever the mask was off, he was an effective villain. Like when, like so, when he's actually killing people without the mask, I thought that was effective. But when he's what what seems to happen is as soon as the mask goes on, he adopts a whole other persona, and there's a lot of dancing around for the camera, and it and so I think that's probably the stuff that you were noticing. I've I've that always kind of felt a little bit like why is he doing that? He doesn't need to be doing that. Um, I think what they were going for is they wanted you to really understand how crazy he was. That, that was, that's my only guess. And I, I you know, I, I it, it, it kind of works in that respect, but I feel like Lolier's Lolier doesn't need a mask to be a good villain. Lolier's, you know, he, he plays Pai Mei. He, he's, he's like the king of bad guys in these movies and he, he can, his eyes alone are useful tools for making you be like, okay, this guy's serious. This guy's dangerous. I think the mask actually, in this case, worked against his strength as an actor. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so maybe the only thing left for him to do is move around. I don't know. But like... Uh, yeah. But, I, and I think, it, uh, to me, and I know it's not as though I expect every movie to be completely logical, but it just it didn't make logical sense to me. Like, why would he... When he didn't have the mask on, for the most part, he was super, like, kind of like cold, collected, yeah. and like focused and then why would he suddenly turn into like a raving crazy madman for no reason and then number two was for the most if i remember correctly for at least the first two and maybe all the victims i don't think anybody saw him except the victim and it was like it wasn't as though having that mask on really did anything in particular you know it didn't Mm -hmm. disguise him he wasn't in disguise because nobody saw him and other than the like the you know the the shock factor of seeing it the first time, it didn't really seem to have much function. But I think you're probably right. It was what you just said about. Well, and there are horror movies where the, when the mask is on, the character does change. So that's you know that's fine with horror. It's just that you want it to be a change that is terrifying, and the change kind of takes away from the. But I will say this because I because you said that on in email to me, and I was like, well, I'm going to pay attention to the horror elements and see. You know, just from the perspective, because I watched a lot of horror growing up, so I had some, you know, uh, you know. So I, th- I thought I'd try to answer your question as good as I could. A lot of the movie is very effective with in terms of jet creating atmosphere, 
you know, like they have like a lot of shots where like he's at the in his lair and it's dark and there's lightning and there's all kinds of things going on. The scenes where he's where, that are that involve a lot of gore. Those are all the kinds of scenes that when I was young and we were watching horror movies, we would have been like real big fans of It's The kind of horror that like jaded horror movie fans need because they always need another level of, you know, brutality or just, you know, visceral gore to to keep things interesting. Um and I, I thought that the, uh, uh, again, I think it was everything except for the scenes with the mask and the dancing. It's particularly the dancing stuff. That's kind of where it falters. Um, I'm trying to think. And, and, and overall, though, I thought the movie was very well shot. I was paying very close attention to that this time. And there are scenes in this movie where they use slow motion and every frame of that scene looks astounding if you if you pause it. Um also, the movie did something really interesting in the very beginning, and then it didn't really do it again. So I, I think it just kind of made its point and moved on. But when it first introduces Master Lung and his wife, it juxtaposes them. And there's all these like split edits of him doing his sword and her doing her hair. And I just found that very effective, you know, because, you know, knowing the plot and knowing what it's about, it's sort of like, okay, these the, the way that they're establishing just how superficial these characters are how they're obsessed with appearance and how they're obsessed with their own perfection and their own standing i thought was you know and and it did it in a way if you pay attention to the edit it's very it's very like kinetic and it makes you uneasy you know what i mean it's like done to sort of disarm you um but but to answer the the horror question i think did you ever see the movie I know this is a horror movie, so maybe you haven't seen it, but did you ever see uh, the Dracula movie by Francis Ford Coppola? I never saw that one, no. So I bring this movie up a lot. Number one, because it's my fa- it's one of my favorite movies. But number two, it, it's it's a horror movie that commits like a classic horror movie blunder, um, which is maybe fine because in the end it produces something else that's interesting. But it it tries to combine a love story with a horror story. And the love story ends up t- shaving away at the horror. Do you know what I mean? They make Dracula so sympathetic that you're not even afraid of him anymore. And I think this movie, because it's combining wuxia and horror, the wuxia scenes and the kung fu scenes, they shave away at the horror a little bit. Because the moment you have guys sitting there punching and kicking each other like that, it doesn't feel like anybody's life is in extra peril you know, that you need for like a horror movie. So, and, 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 and again, these are all just observations about the effectiveness of the horror. The movie's great. I think it's a wonderful movie. I thought it was so good that I made, uh, in my strange tales game, I have a, an adventure called heads of waterfall Bay and that's inspired entirely by this movie. So, you know, I, I think this is a, it's, it's definitely a great film. Um, but if you're going to sit there and dissect the horror there, there are those areas. I think you weren't wrong. We're kind of, there's something a little off, the other thing I noticed was a lot of the horror, even though this was made in the 80s, I think it was 82, um, it felt more like 60s horror. You know what I mean? It was like shot in the style of 60s horror, but they were emulating stuff like the Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th and stuff like that. So it just, I think if this was shot in 90s style, like all those 90s movies you liked, a lot of those are very creepy. Do you know what I mean? Even if they're not meant to be scary. And I think that if it was shot in that style, it would have been scarier because they would have had the Dutch angles and just the really creepy makeup work and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of 
of like scariness, I would put this on a scale of one to ten at like two. I was never really that scary. I do have to mention, um, and I, I, this is a subject I think for another podcast altogether. But this, uh, the Human Lanterns, I would say correlates very well with the number two adventure that we include in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades. The number two adventure, we have two adventures in the book, and the second one. Not not exactly parallels. It doesn't exactly parallel this one, but the, it does have some sort of horrific, sort of killer yeah. um, elements that that this movie I would say represents perfectly in terms of uh, how that kind of horrific, bloody stuff can be brought into Wuxia. And I would just say, don't let that two rating uh, put you to at ease because the gory scenes are pretty gory. So people well, should that just, is true. people yeah. should just know that like like there's a rape scene. There's there's people getting their skin taken off, so yeah, yeah. it's th- that stuff is still in there. Um, so just be aware of that if you watch it. Um, I've just yeah, had people get I... mad at me when I've recommended the movie. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, in terms of, uh, I wouldn't call that stuff scary. I would say that's like it's gore. It's gore. Maybe? It's gore. Yeah, it's gore. Yeah. It's exploitation type movie. It's yeah. gore and exploitation. And I think uh, in terms of being. A, in terms of gore, it's, I think, a very effective movie because they take characters that you actually do care about and they, 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 that's where the, the gore is focused on. And so it's, it's pretty unnerving. Uh, also, just people having their skin pulled off in general is not, you know, not, <laughs> yeah. I, I found it uncomfortable. I, I assume most people would. Um, so, so yeah, so those are the two movies. Um, and I, what we really want to talk about today primarily is, uh, how those connect to things in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades. In particular, this concept of the top 10 weapons and top 10 fighters that we have, and this concept of eccentricities, and also of face, which we get into in the GM section. Um, so I don't know, should we tackle top 10 weapons and fighters first? Cause... Sure, and I think that one is much more pertinent to Magic Blade than uh, Human Lanterns. Because, I mean, for one thing... The concept of the top 10 weapons and the top 10 fighters is pretty much from Gulong, at least yeah. in terms of how we used it for inspiration. And Gulong will have that actually mentioned in the in his novels, and it's mentioned in the movies as well. I don't know if I mentioned it in the movie now that I think about it, but I know that the novel specifically says that Fu Hongxia is actually the number one on the top 10 list. And then uh, in terms of the weapon the peacock dart from the movie that is listed because i did a little bit of research um online and the list of top 10 weapons that people that like it's mentioned in his novels and then people the fans will actually make their own list so peacock dart is on that top 10 weapon list and i'm pretty sure it mentions it in the film as well as being on the top 10 weapons but maybe i'm getting a little bit no i think it is and and also the list is like subjective so somebody will they'll be disputed and and it, it mentions in the book that there's almost trolling going on where people will put things on the list in order to cause friction in the martial world. So Yeah, and it changes over time too. Like for instance, in the uh, Heroes Shed No Tears uh, novel, it starts out with a conversation about the top 10 weapons and, and the master is asking, the oh no, the young apprentice or whatever is asking the master, like what is the top weapon? And, and, and then the, the master asks the, the kid to to guess and he lists some of these weapons and one of them is 
uh, Little Lee's Flying Dagger, but that yeah. book takes place after Little Lee is either dead or retired or something. And so the master says, well, that used to be the number one, but that's not the number one anymore. So yeah. obviously it's subjective and changes over time. Yeah, it's, an, it's a definitely an evolving martial world because they talk about like the decades and who's the head of the decade. And, and you know, and I think even they might even say century at certain points. Um, so we lifted that concept directly and put it into the game. And so in the game, we suggest that uh, GMs can make their own Jianghu martial arts world. But obviously that's a big undertaking. So we provided the one that we created and it includes this list of top 10 weapons and top 10 fighters. And focusing on the weapons at first, they're supposed to be weapons that are incredibly powerful and also things that the people in the martial world all covet. And yeah. so the entire plot of Magic Blade revolves around this weapon that people want. Everybody wants it. Not everybody, but a lot of people want it because if you have it, supposedly it can kill anybody. Yeah. And so the concept of these weapons that everybody wants and is willing to like fight to the death to get is something that we pulled into the game and we have a lot of weapons in the novels and then there are 10 of them that are supposed to be the, the ultimate weapons and i don't know if you want to get into detail about the weapons themselves or if you had any thoughts about how we use them or how they i are. mean i so number one we should say there are way more than 10 weapons in the game but we created a list of these are the top 10 and these are and we did it in the style of gulong and and again even with a game where you have stats, it's still hard to not make it a subjective call because obviously, you know, the person who ends up at the top of the list happens to be one of my favorite characters in the game, right? So there's 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 always going to be the question of, is this person really there because of substance or is it a style thing? And I think that makes that, I don't know, it, what the top 10 list does for me when I was running the game is it gave the players a clear sense of who's who in the Zhanghu. There are other people that exist in the Zhanghu. There are other weapons, but these are the famous people that you have to really know in order to understand the sort of just the, the background of the world you live in. And, and it, it's, it's sort of the thing like in, in a lot of, in a lot of games, when you, when you try to tell your players about the world, you, you, you tell them like, Oh, well there's, you know, this is the history. This is blah, blah, blah. Here, it's really more about the character. So I think you can almost just say, this is the top 10 list of fighters. You know, this person is known for this. This person is known for that. And that kind of gives you the backdrop that you need to get started. Do you know what I mean? Because then once things move, it's, it's again, every GM is different. You might not always incorporate the top 10 people. But I think it's kind of inevitable the top 10 people start making appearances in, in campaigns. Um, yeah. And so one, the, the big downside to the complicated world that we created, including these top 10 um, fighters and weapons is that unfortunately none of the players are going to be, are going to know who any of these people are. You know, there's no like yeah. book that they can read ahead of time. And then they can be like, you know, for example, if you're playing in a, in a star Wars game and you say, and then Darth Vader walks into the room, everybody's going to be like, Whoa, no yeah. way. But you're playing our game and you say, and then Shelly Zwan walks into the room. People are going to be like, Who's that? Except yeah. she's supposed to be like the top figure. So, you know, this this reminds me of when I um, watched. So I, I, I not to derail the conversation, but there's a point to this. Um, so I, I never watched The Witcher, played The Witcher, read any of The Witcher books. Um, and well, until the Netflix series came out. And so I decided to watch it. And my first time through, I was just like kind of in like my eyes glazed over because there they are so many characters that they're yeah. throwing names out and dates and all these different things 
and it was just too complicated. And then subs later on, I've been reading the books and rewatching it, and that kind of means more to me now. But the point is just throwing a bunch of names at the players is you have to handle it in the right way. And I think that um, introducing our Jung Hu to them and including these top 10 people is could be an important part of your session zero, which I think we've talked about on the on the podcast before or in some other way so that if you do include them in the game, at least the players have heard of these people before, because these are the kind of people who. Even if you're a uh, you know a, a nobody guard in some temple in the backwoods of some province, you're gonna probably have heard of all of these people. Well, what I think would generally work, I mean, everybody's different. Everybody wants a different level of of immersion and how they do it. I'm inclined to just give people the list. Just say this is the list of the top ten people. You know, you don't need to memorize it, but you might want to refer to it as the game unfolds. Do you know what I mean? And then. If somebody's name is mentioned and somebody's like, wait a second, and then look at the list, then they might say, okay, what do I know about this person? And then you can say, okay, you know, see if the person has a relevant skill that they would know, or if it's widespread information, you can tell them what you think they would know. But I think that organic way of doing it tends to work. Um, obviously, you know, if uh, it could go the other way where maybe they meet somebody and they have no idea, you know, and then... And then after the battle, you know, when they realize, oh, wait, that's like the top 10 fighter so-and-so that can all, you know, I, I don't think that there's like a, I don't think there's like a one true way to, to sort of plan how the characters are going to know these people. Cause you really can't always plan a campaign in that kind of detail. I think the key thing is, you know, the list is just a, a handy reference to kind of, you know, uh, it, it reflects the base level of knowledge that anybody with any any experience at all in the Zhang Hu would have about you know who's who and what weapons are important, um, and also it it kind of preps the player's mind so they understand that people and weapons are very significant in this setting. Do you know what I mean? So, and to clarify a point here because I, I think some people might be wondering wondering why wouldn't the players just read this information on their own. I have to point out that we had a, a decision to make um, about how to structure the book in terms of where we put certain information. And in the end, we we ended up putting all of the NPCs and a lot of, uh, well, basically the NPCs and a lot of um, Jianghu, in other words, the world building information in the GM section. Yeah. And we, yeah. the players aren't really supposed to have access to that for spoiler purposes and for other reasons. They do have access to the weapon list. They don't have access to the NPCs and the top 10 uh, fighters list. So that's why we're saying maybe the GM can just give a yeah. list or, or whatever, because otherwise the players are not going to have any idea of any of this stuff. But then on the other hand, if the players did have access to that, then it would make the Jianghu skill that we created a little bit kind of pointless because that's supposed to reflect their characters. You know, sort of if the players have all that information right from the get-go, it kind of defeats the purpose of it. So the other thing is, you know, are the actual entry, like, I mean, there's an extensive Zhang Hu with characters and people and places, but there's one paragraph at the very start of the uh, chapter 11, and the GM could theoretically just read that to the players if they wanted to. Um, you know, it, it basically tells you who's the top fighter right now. 
and it kind of gives you a sense of what the the overall flavor of the Zhang Hu is. Um, but again, I think everything about our Zhang Hu, kind of like a Gulong novel, is very structured around who's the top ten fighter, who's the top ten, what's the top ten weapon, and you'll see that in the adventures. A lot of the adventures, it, well, you have two adventures in the book, and and both of them deal with top ten fighters in different ways, and one of them very specifically deals with the top ten weapon issue. Um, and so that's sort of what fuels a lot of the conflicts and grudges in the martial world. So it's it's also just a useful tool for the GM so that the GM knows, okay, I have these, you know, so so I'm looking at the top 10 list now, you know, and he says, okay, this, you know, this, this, this character named Sword Goddess is number 10 for some reason, you know, and maybe he goes and looks at Sword Goddess and says, hmm. I don't know why she's so low on the list. Maybe, you know, maybe she's resentful. Like it can lead the, the GM to sort of adventure ideas. Uh, you know, it, it also just kind of gives you, uh, I what do we have in the book? 50 characters? Something like that. Yeah. The, so there are 50 characters in the book. They're all significant in their own way, but these are the 10 that we felt belonged on the list. And so it's just a really quick, you know, maybe these are the characters you want to look at first as a GM, uh, also do you know what i mean and these these characters would be perfect for when character when the player characters go into town they go into the the restaurant or the market or and they're looking around for rumors and stuff these would be great ones to be talking about whether yeah. even if the even if the information is not relevant to the story of your the story that you're building it could you know you, you would still be hearing you know, t tales of their exploits and whatnot, and that could add a, some great flavor to the game without having to do you know much work at all in turn on on the GM side. And also because this is a character driven game, we don't really you you don't necessarily assume just because like Bone Physician strolls through the city that the players have to be in opposition to him. You know, in 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 Wuxia, it's very possible for characters. To, to to sort of you know they can go one of two ways they could become friends or they could become enemies so you know I, I think that opens up a lot of uh, adventure opportunities if you handle the people from the list in that way too you know it's just a, sure and uh, and you know magic blade is is such a great example of both of ways to use both of these things because um, on the one hand, in Magic Blade, they make a big point about this peacock dart, where you know word about it getting out could cause problems because yeah. everybody's gonna gonna want to get it. And so I think the idea is, for the most part, when one of these top ten weapons shows up, and people have a chance to get at it, almost everybody's gonna want want it. But that's not necessarily a hundred percent true because the main character of Magic Blade, Fuangxia. He doesn't really care about the peacock, yeah. or he doesn't want it, and he, in fact, he rejects it for all intents and purposes. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that's a good example of, and and this is something players who wanna, uh, who want to put put a bit of effort into making a sort of realistic wuxia setting, they should take that into consideration. What is what kind of character are they playing? It, if their character is not the kind of person who would say, "Oh my gosh, one of these top ten weapons is in town. We have to get it no matter what, even if we have to, you know, kill the city magistrate or or something like that." Are they that kind of character? If not, why do they not care about it? Why? Why? Yeah. What would be their motivation for not caring about having one of these top ten weapons? Yeah. Yeah. No. And so it's 
it's it's a um I don't know it's a good starting point for a lot of different things I think and I I found the list very helpful just as we were making the game in general just to sort of think about it's kind of a um you know it, also there's the other thing is a lot of players might want to end up on that list too that's the other part of this you know yeah so, absolutely and and same thing kind of as in the same lines of what I was just saying is if you have a character who does not care about being on that top ten list why why yeah. it's almost built into the jungle that most people want to be in that list yeah why wouldn't they well you know what it's like it's like so and this is maybe a concept that people sometimes don't always get when they first start games like this but it's a little bit like being a boxer and not wanting to be the champion of your weight division do you know what I mean like like people that become boxers don't say well I'm just gonna be you know a tomato can you know you know some people do maybe you know if the money's good for them but like most people even if they aren't any good they 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 aspire to be in that top that at least the top three do you know what I mean so it's similar to that sort of thing these are martial figures these are people who train to fight and even if they're good guys they still have pride and ego and I think that's you know again that's another reason why a list like this is significant you know it shouldn't be something that like and deathblade's been saying this over and over again um it's not something that most figures in the martial world will ignore it's a, uh it's gonna have importance to them you know unless they're very unusual like the main character from magic blade which is fine and- but there's got to be a reason and to be fair, he's if he is the number one top fighter, then you know he doesn't necessarily have a need for that. And the way he's portrayed, at least in the movie, is I kind of feel like he's reaching the point where he's wants to be done with this Jianghu stuff. And in fact, he actually makes a cameo in Death Duel as Wong yeah. Xue, right? And if I remember correctly, he kind of has he he does. He, was it was it Death either... Duel or was it Swordsman Enchantress? It was Death Duel. It was Death Duel, right? I think it's Death Duel. Maybe it's I forget. No, it's Death Duel. Thinks... It's Death Duel. You're right. You're right. And he kind of makes an appearance as Fuongsua, and, and I'm pretty sure at that point he kind of already has unofficially retired and kind of gives the advice of the that... you know don't get involved in all this this Jiang Hu bloodshed stuff. We we haven't done that movie, have we? Not in this podcast. No, we, we should definitely do it. Uh, my that scene. I love the Confucian scholar who realizes he just wants to like everybody suddenly being honest in the room, and he's like, "All I want to do is just go have fun and be and like every <laughs> right." Like everybody just you got, want to point out. We probably ought to move on because we're going to run yeah. out of time. But I do want to point out that in the two uh, adventure modules that we include in the game, we have as um, characters to some extent or another at least three from the top 10 fighters list. And we have three weapons from the top 10 weapons list in, in between those two different adventures. So there are a lot of possibilities right from the get go that the game master can include this stuff and kind of run with it. Now. um, Okay. So moving on to eccentricities and eccentric characters, these are, uh, these are really important in the game. Everybody begins the game with an eccentricity. And we did that for a reason where, you know, I mean, it's common in all Wuxia, but it's particularly noticeable in Gulong, I think. Like, it's common in, 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 in Lewis Cha books, too. Like, everybody's a little bit eccentric, but, like, not the way that they are in a Gulong story. Do you know what I mean? Like, characters in Gulong books are warty. Do you know what I mean? They, there's, there's usually something eccentric and a little bit devilish or ugly in the mix. Um, and so... You know, eccentricities can be a whole range of things. There's all, you know, they, 
they, they they can just be that you're you know you're like a gluttonous type of person or you know they're 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 really there for for flavor more than anything but but the the on top of that system is what we also built our fire deviation uh concepts on and so fire deviation in this game and for those who don't know about it it's a, it's a concept that comes up in wuxia where where characters suffer some kind of imbalance from you know usually overtraining or training incorrectly or applying the wrong principles to their internal uh exercises and it can produce strange physical effects it can produce mental effects so we just folded that into eccentricities because it's just like another layer and so our our eccentricities are are sort of tiered where they have different effects depending on um uh what uh you know what what you know how you how you acquire them um and so uh so i don't know do you want to talk about eccentric characters in magic blade or um well i was just kind of digesting what you said and seeing if i wanted to add add on to that because i do got to point out that at least in the play test i run all of the players really really like these things, whether it was the regular eccentricities or the, or, and we have deep eccentricities and then we have the fire deviation eccentricities, especially the fire devi deviation eccentricities. I, I think that they, everybody really liked them. Not everybody wanted to get them, but everybody liked the concept of them. Now, there's a way that you can um, acquire more martial arts than normal by intentionally taking one of these eccentricities. And there were some players who did that. They were totally fine with it. They didn't mind uh, getting become more and more eccentric to improve their martial arts. There were other characters who didn't want to. Like I had, I had a uh, one of my female playtesters was playing kind of like a young woman, beautiful, and she wanted to keep her character young and beautiful, and so she really wanted to avoid getting the wrong kind of eccentricities. And we have a uh, the system for leveling up is that you have to meditate and pass your meditation checks in order to avoid getting these fire deviation eccentricities. So for the players who don't want it, they need to make sure they can meditate. For the players who don't care too much about it, they can save their skill points and leave them out of meditation, but then they have to understand that they're most likely gonna start getting more and more of these eccentricities as their players get higher. And uh, and yeah, so um, I think to the, uh, the eccentricities, they, I don't know, they just, they just, like, I had them in Ogre Gate, but they were optional. And one of the downsides of making them optional is then they, they, they when you have optional flaws or optional eccentricities, they become like a, a mechanical carrot where you give somebody points for taking one. And by just making them automatic, you have to have them. It, it, it no longer feeds into this min-maxing urge that players might have. Uh, so I think that that was, you know, an, another, another use. It, you, you, you take one cause you know, you have to take one. It's not based on, is it going to give me something? So I think I, th oh, go ahead. I was just saying, and I, I think that I, I totally get what you're saying. I agree. I was just going to point out that I think we did a pretty good job of, of balancing it out because we have some eccentricities which are mechanical they will actually affect your your roles or your things you can do some of them are very role-playing centric you know it could yeah. be um like we have one persistent laughter so if you have somebody who is a 
into the role playing and they want to add that it could work but others are just completely um like flavor for example scars or somebody that's ugly yeah. and then in, also when you get into the fire deviation the fire deviation eccentricities we have the same thing some are mechanical some are role playing so i think we have a really good mix that the gm can use to make the character the player character is happy with it uh, bringing it back around to to magic blade i, I think that that uh it doesn't necessarily like we're not necessarily talking about physical eccentricities either. So I think your your devil granny is probably one that has at least a few. She's eccentricities. Got a, so if we were yeah, let's think. So if we were to make devil, so I don't know. I mean, she's old. That's not necessarily eccentricity. So um, she's she's nasty. She's mean. She's wicked. She eats human flesh. She has this tendency to laugh she drinks human blood apparently and you know there's a scene where she tries to to drink the hero's blood um i think you could probably fold that under a single one but you might also give her a couple uh i mean yeah Yeah. like we have one where it's called delicacy of the human flesh where like you're supposed to you basically have to eat human flesh i think she probably has that one yeah um and then yeah like you can Without getting into too much detail, you you could definitely have have. In fact, we actually do have a character. It's not exactly her, but I think it's highly modeled after her. Right? Isn't brocaded granny? Kind yeah. Of like well, we have a couple. Her? We have her. We have people playing witch. Which I mean, they're modeled after all of the all of the lovely grannies that populate Gulong stories. But um, but she's. I would say I think brocaded granny. People playing witch is probably more modeled. Of, of devil grandma but i'd have to look at them again to be sure brocaded granny they're both nasty in their own way do you know what i mean so um yeah and i i, I over the past you know month or two i've been kind of i've ha- gotten a real call of cthulhu sort of like obsession not playing it because i'm stuck at home with nobody to play with and i can't really play online but i realized after a while that our eccentricity system it's not exactly like the call of cthulhu insanity system but it's it's kind of vaguely reminiscent and i think it's 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 just like i mentioned my players really really liked it and it's it's just fun to create your character and then kind of start leveling up and seeing how you if you pass your meditation roles and if you don't what kind of eccentricities you develop because we have if we have basically at least in terms of the fire deviations we have three tables for physical three tables for mental and so what that means is you could have a lot of variety in what kind of eccentricities you could you could end up with i think it would be fun almost just to to create a character and level it up and see what develops to see what kind of strange eccentricities come out and we did work hard in those tables i remember having a lot of effort went into getting those tables into their current state um i also want to point out we 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 made an interesting choice where we have beautiful be an eccentricity in the game, which I think makes sense for the genre. Um, but it's, you know, it, you know, it's, it's interesting that that's also an eccentricity. Um, I don't know. Do you want to move on to, to face or are we? Yeah, let's, let's move on to face. Okay. So face, obviously that has a lot more to do with um, human lanterns. I would say, uh, you know, that movie is, I mean, it's explicitly about face. The, the, the main, the, the, the closest thing you get to a main character, Master Lung, he is constantly talking about how he's losing face. In fact, what at first looks like a jealous rage turns out, to, you know, where, where 
this courtesan that he's sort of he he he's paid her a lot of money to only see him is what it seems like uh the other master hires her to come to his party and that's what instigates the whole thing and initially when i first saw the movie i thought he was just in a in a, in a you know love mad rage but it was no he didn't care about love at all that wasn't the that was like the furthest thing from his mind he just cared about the appearance of this woman who everybody knows is his you know seeing this other master in this way um and so I don't know. I, I always found that character very fascinating because he, he's like, no, 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 I don't care about love. There's no such thing as caring about love. All that matters is, you know, my status, my, my, you know, how I appear in society. And, and that, in that, that, that mo that motivation can drive him just into territory that's normally reserved for things like love and passion and, you know, anger and all is, is, it's it, it was it was uh it was probably the movie where i first encountered you know that kind of a concept do you know what i mean so and i know that you have particular interest in it so i thought that and we do mention yeah. it in the game well that was a that was a good speech he gave and and i totally agree that this is a, a really good movie to kind of see it see the spotlight cast onto face as a concept because it really drives the whole plot and so in the GM section of the game, we do have a whole section on it. I have at least two videos on it, I think, on my YouTube channel. So that's uh, youtube.com slash deathblade, where I talk about it. It's really a complex topic. And although face obviously exists in all cultures and Western culture, in Chinese culture, I, I mean, if you want to kind of just put it into a sentence, I would say it's way more exaggerated than in Western culture. And it's an it's a much more of a like formal thing as is pointed out in this movie where it's it's something that people give a lot of consideration to and so when you know the game masters are are running their game and when the players are playing it's something that i i feel they should really really pay attention to and they can add a lot of authenticity to emphasize that a lot and yeah. so we give some examples in the in the in the uh in the game that i'm not going to get into now but the point is just that it really should play an integral role. And um, offend, well, when somebody is offended, when somebody humiliates another person, when somebody does something to outshine another person, that should really be taken seriously. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the, I don't want to call it a problem, but I think one of the misconceptions that people have, not just, I mean, it, it goes hand in hand with wuxia. Uh, Chinese culture uh, you know, wuxia is integral to Chinese culture, or perhaps I should say it the other way around. Chinese culture is integral to wuxia. If you really want to have an authentic, you know, wuxia story or game, you really need to consider how Chinese culture works. And so I think one of the misconceptions people have is that, like, they look at, like, you know, Buddhist monks and, like, Taoists as portrayed in, you know, like, uh, you know, in the media and they kind of think of that as being Chinese culture, like people that meditate and like, you know, mm -hmm. talk about flowery, flowery religious stuff and, and do Tai Chi and, and it's like so peaceful and serene and they live in temples that couldn't be further <laughs> from the truth. I, I saw this a lot when I was living in China and I was the manager of the school and I would interview and bring in new foreigners and every single new foreigner that came to China, almost every single time would have pretty severe culture shock because they were expecting China to be like, you know, monks in temples, like everybody's drinking tea and stuff. And it's, it's just not like that. 
And this concept of face and getting offended and wanting to get revenge and stuff, it's just super integral. And so the more the GM and the player can integrate that, I think the more authentic it will be. And one easy way to learn about it, obviously, is to watch the movies and consider that as you're watching the movies. And something also that we should probably mention is we did not give face mechanical weight in the game. And that was a choice. We had a discussions about it. Uh, we had some feedback from people when we were initially having them read through the game and stuff. Some people wanted us to have mechanics for face. Some people weren't as interested in it. But you were pretty adamant that you didn't think it would be a good idea to put mechanics to face. And I was just curious what if you could if you remember the reason if uh, if you could talk about it. Well, it's been a long time since that point, I think, almost two years, so I'm not <laughs> sure what exactly I was thinking at the time, but I can definitely give you my opinion on it now, and I think it's, I think that was 100% the right choice. For one thing, you know, despite what I just said now, my little monologue about how important <laughs> it is, it, you know, the whole point of the game is for people to have fun, so if if, if the GM and the players aren't, aren't wanting to have, like, this super authentic Chinese Wuxia game, and they just want to have high-flying kung fu, flying swords and stuff, and they don't care about that, then fine. They, they can just completely toss that out the window. And so I think that's one real big reason to not have, as a, have it as a mechanical thing, just because then we would be forcing people to have it, and I don't think it's something that's worth forcing people to have. Number two is that it's really, really subjective. Okay. It's very subjective. And I think it's it needs to be a part of the role-playing aspect and not part of the die-rolling aspect. And even, you know, despite how much I say it's important to, to Chinese culture, it absolutely is, that that doesn't mean that there are any rules about it. There are no rules about it. And some people will handle face differently. Like, I'll give you a perfect example, not related to Usha. I was, you know, I worked at a school. And, m like, most of the parents, they would never allow their child to, this is a training school, by the way, or like an after-school program, right? It's not, okay. not, okay. not the mandated school that children go to during the day it was after school and you know we had different levels for you know their english you know let's just call them level one to five if a kid started at level one and then went to level two um and then level three that would happen just because they graduated but it wouldn't necessarily mean that they have the skill and language ability to be in that level and so sometimes the teacher would say to the parent you know your student is your child is their english has not progressed we suggest they go back down to level two Virtually no parent would agree to that and it had and it was all because of face they felt they would then I had parents tell me this directly They would say I I would lose face my kid would lose face. We're never gonna go down a level Okay, but there were some parents who when we suggested that they said, okay Yeah, we'll do that mm -hmm. and they let their kid go down a level and then the kid did way better So the point is there's no like codified set of what yeah. is losing face what is gaining face and so I think that's another argument to not have it be a mechanical thing I think what you told me at the time was that it was just too complicated to really distill into a mechanic. And I think it gets at the same stuff of what you're saying, which is you kind of take this complex cultural feature and then you turn it into a mechanic and that, number one, that would have to simplify it. But it also might distort it in the process, I would think. Um, and it wouldn't allow for the kinds of exceptions that you're you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and so. it, it, I, I can only, I mean, again, there's a lot of different ways you could handle it, but the concept of keeping track of your face, of like face, and then like, I can just imagine the arguments that 
could happen at the game table when, it, well, when GM is saying, well, you lost face and the players will go, I don't care. I didn't lose face or whatever. It's just, yeah. so, you're right. So complicated. Well, I had like, I have like reputation in Ogregate and, and that works fine, but it is one of these things where, you know, it's, do you, and it's fairly light mechanically, but the question is, do I need a mechanic to tell, to tell me something like, Everybody in the martial world knows that this guy is a maniac. Do you know what I mean? Like, do I need the mechanic for that or not? So that's, you know, um, I think it's always better to err on lighter mechanics for anything that's potentially role play oriented. And I think in the case of face, it just I found your argument convincing. I didn't think that was something we really needed to to include as a mechanic but we do include information on it we do talk about face in the book yeah and, and we it, give examples of how it could be used in the game and i think one very important part is is our section on teaming up and face because what we aimed for in this game was more not exclusively but more like one-on-one duels between yeah. people as opposed to general battle melee combat and one reason for that is that uh in wuxia and in real life you know Generally speaking, it's going to be a loss of face for people to team up on somebody of equal level to them. It's not, again, not like set in stone. For example, out in the woods, nobody knows, then it might be a different story. But on the street, if there's, let's using levels, let's say there's three level five guys and then they're facing off against one level five guy, it would be a big loss of face for them to just team up and attack him. Well, there's also, I mean, that's also one of those things we're going to be honest too, where they, there's always wiggle room, it seems, in Wuxia for, around this issue, and every author yeah. handles it very differently, I noticed. Yep. So I think that it really depends. Like, so that will always be a general kind of thing. Like, if, if, if a bunch of characters team up on a big evil villain, they'll say, like, how deceptive those characters are. But, but they'll still be teaming up on the big evil villain because they have to sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that happens in Return of Condor Heroes. There's a scene where they're teaming up on Lee Mocho. And she's like, you know, who would have thought that, you know, that, that, that the, that the, that the, uh, you know, the, 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 what do they call the, uh, Huang Rong and Guo Jing as a couple? Are they called the, uh, uh, I forget their name as a couple, but who would have thought that that couple's family would be so deceptive and, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Actually, that's, Uh, that's a good example, um, because, well, that, that novel is a good example because, you know, Guo Jing and Xiao Longnu, the, their relationship was a huge, like, it shouldn't have happened. And normally speaking, it would oh, have wait, been... Oh, are you talking about Guo Jing and, and... I'm sorry, Yang Guo. Oh, okay. Yang Guo and okay. Xiaolongyu, sorry. The, the, the main characters. Yeah. Technically speaking, because of their, you know, they were master and apprentice, they should never have had a romantic relationship. Now, normally speaking, they would have done that in secret. And then if they found, if the world in general found out, they would have lost all face. Yeah. But they literally didn't care about it at all. And they're like, we're going to do it anyway. So there's a perfect example of like, did they lose face or did in their mind they didn't, but in other people's minds they did. Well, that's what's interesting about that book is you take the, and again, we're going a little bit off topic, but the first book is like about a hero who is, he's dim-witted, but he's like really upright and he follows all the rules pretty much. And then the protagonist in the second book couldn't be further from, he's also heroic, but it kind of, you don't really know for sure that he's a hero until the end. He's kind of discovering, am I like my father or am I, you know, an unorthodox hero of some kind? So it, it it's, I, I feel like it's, it's allowing for another type of hero to exist in that world that he's creating. 
But the thing that was interesting, I thought about that exchange is then Lee Mocho goes around and she starts scrawling nasty messages about the, the I, I forget if it's if it's about Yang Go and his wife or about Guo Jing and, and Huang Rong. But she goes around basically saying like the students of these people are all deceptive and wicked and they team up and they do, you know, and, it, and it's just constant everywhere they go. They see these messages. Um, so uh so I guess what you know to sort of bring it back into face into the game is that, you know, when when you have situations like that where where characters violate the rules of the martial world, it can even give like a bad guy some some room to kind of exploit and and use against them. So it's uh you know, you I think I think that you don't have to you don't have to like 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 you said there's no mechanic you don't have to enforce it physically in the setting. But if the players do something that would uh, would would be would cause them to lose face, then they might uh, th- there might be social consequences. Um, so so yeah so so I, and again I I think we mentioned this at the start of the podcast, but this is all during the the COVID thing, and so there might be distractions in the background. Yeah, uh, we, give me one second. Yeah, hey, but I'm doing a recording now. Hey, I'm just. <laughs> Okay, give me two minutes, okay? Just one minute. Oh. Okay, you got one minute, buddy. <laughs> okay. Can you close the door? I'll come out in one minute, okay? Jeremy, I can put him on my phone. Uh, just give me one minute. All right, so we're going to use our one minute wisely and wrap up. Um, okay. I think, uh, what, uh, was there anything you wanted to add? I know I kind of rambled there at the end. So I don't no, I think, I think we covered it, covered it quite well. Um, so, yeah, so uh, we'll be back on... I want to talk about a movie called Web of Death if we can. I think we put that on our list, but I don't know. That's okay. the only thing. Um, I also wouldn't mind. I know it's not on the list, but now that you've seen Lady Hermit and you have thoughts, I would very much like to talk about Lady Hermit. So we might we might try to get Lady Hermit in here if we can, even though it's definitely not one of the darker Wuxia movies. It's, it's, yeah, I think that would be a good one. Yeah. Uh, all right. So so we will we will head out. And until next time, we will talk to you later. With the laughter comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Are you dead or insane? 